everyone, welcome back to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. This is your host, Brad Hawes. And I am back with my final broadcast for 2018, and I have my good friend Julie Daniluk on the line. Um, before I get into my conversation uh, with Julie, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, for those of you following me on Facebook, uh, definitely check out, well, you probably would have heard this already, uh, we are doing some Christmas giveaways between now and January 1st. There there's a ton of stuff that we're giving away. Uh, some of these things are only available to people in Canada. That would be specifically the DNA test and the uh, 30-day pretrition detox that goes with it. Uh, the other two products are available to those of you living in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, again, I'm going to put a link to my Facebook page. There's a pinned post right at the top. Uh, go and check it out. And it's very exciting for me. We have officially launched, I think I might have announced this at the last episode, um, but I've officially launched the Holistic Health Masterclass community platform, which is outside of Facebook. So I know a lot of you have been telling me you are not enjoying Facebook at all. Um, uh, there's censorship, there's all sorts of madness going on inside of Facebook. And, uh, you know, frankly, it's just quite noisy and quite cluttered. And so I made the choice um, about a month ago. I said, you know what, it's really time for me to move. And um, not that I'm going to be giving up the space entirely on Facebook, uh, more that um, I really want to continue conversation and add value and house everything that we're doing under one community banner. So what you're going to see in there, uh, just click on the link in the show notes and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, there, you know, basically in that community is everything that we do. So uh, there are different groups for different types of, you know, the practitioner groups and their inner circle groups and mastermind groups. And all of that stuff's going to get built out. But you'll also see that um, any courses that we offer that will also house our courses as well. So some of you listening to this, I know, have done courses. You have access to courses that I've done um, and created in the past. Uh, these are all now going to be housed in the community um, website. All right, so pretty exciting stuff. Um, I don't want to jabber on too much more about that. So check out the link. And I know many of you have joined already. Um, so that would be great if you could join that group. And uh, that's actually part of the rules for the giveaways that we're giving over Christmas. So uh, again, check out the links that I put in the show notes, get onto my Facebook page and everything will be right there for you to access. Okay, um, right. So on to today's episode um, with my friend, Julie. Uh, for those of you who don't know Julie, Julie is, um, uh, she's pretty well, I think, Canada's most famous nutritionist. Uh, she has a couple of best-selling books. She's just published her third book. Um, we've done a lot of work together, and we've been friends for a really long time. And really what we get into as the final episode for the season here, or for the year, uh, we get into health trends for 2019, and we spend a good chunk of time on some of these, and we just gloss over others because, quite frankly, I don't know why they are a health trend at all. Uh, some of the things that we spend a good chunk of time on are things like self-care, uh, living more of a sober life. Uh, we talk about sleep optimization and Julie actually gives some really, really cool tips there that I did not know of. Uh, we talk about the whole meatless meat craze or this sort of designer meat that's lab grown. And then we double down on that and sort of extend the conversation into something called ketotarianism, which is essentially trying to do a ketogenic diet while being vegan. So uh, lots of interesting discussion around that and really pick that apart. 
Lastly, we get into mesonutrients, which are the sort of uh, the micro, micro, micronutrients. And these would include things like curcumin, EC, GC, uh, AC11, um, your polyphenols, and so on and so on. Uh, so we don't really get into the finer points of that. Suffice to say that we really pick apart, um, you know, just the idea of now we're really, really dialing in to these micronutrients and phytonutrients found in plants. So overall, a um, uh, really great discussion. Um, it is a slightly longer podcast, and I did debate whether I should release this in two episodes. But since we're so close to the year, I figured, hey, why not? Let's just go go for it and release it all in one um so i think that you will uh get a pretty good download for what's coming up in 2019 uh hopefully we've done a good job of um, unpacking some of the stuff and getting uh you know a bit of pros and cons uh, sort of going on here around these issues um so that's it for me i hope that 2018 has been a great year for you and i know that 2019 is set to be a fantastic year for me anyway i have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipeline um, with regards to practitioner mentorship program which is very very small very exclusive Um, i have revamped the clinic as well so depending on when you're listening to this uh, if you go onto the main site you will actually see our clinic services Um, you know a lot of you when i i sort of started stepping away from clinic to help practitioners more and um, i've sort of had to really revisit that idea and come back to the fact that i need to keep practicing and i need to help people because there are so many of you out there that have requested help from me so um, again you know go back to the main site tap into what we're doing and you'll see those clinic services there uh, so i'm going to leave it at that um, thanks as always for tuning in and for supporting the show by listening by sharing and by reviewing and we'll catch up with you in 2019 Hey, Julie, welcome to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. It is such a joy to be with you. This has been a while in the making. And I know that it really was born out of us going on this awesome walk down in, in this fabulous valley that we found and just having so many great conversations. And we're like, we should probably bring this to, to a larger audience. So I'm so glad we're, we're going to delve in today. Totally. Yeah. And um, it has been a while. And for you listeners out there, Julie and I go uh, way back, um, Mm -hmm. going back like well over 10 years now. We have a history and activism together. Um, I helped her with her first book, um, which I would love for you to talk more about at some Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Um, And you've also written another book. Um, So, Julie, I'm actually going to just throw it back on you. And perhaps um, maybe you can just give us a, a quick sort of recap on your background, um, where you're at, what you do in the field these days, and then we'll Mm. hop into today's topics. Sure. So I actually came to the field of nutrition very early because I had really bad attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which at the time was just called hyperactivity when I was a little kid. And my mom found the work of Dr. Feingold when I was super young, like seven years old, and it changed our lives. Um, I went from grade, you know, having D's to straight A's. And I was able to sleep through the night for the very first time. And it turns out I had a really profound sensitivity to cane sugar and other sucrose sources. And also had to stay away from all the dyes and all the artificial preservatives. And so you can imagine getting a head start that way 
early in life. By the time I was in college, I was reading more about nutrition than Shakespeare. I was in theater school, but never really paid attention to to really wanting to pursue, say, Stratford or Shaw. I really, really wanted to marry the two together. And so after going to nutrition school, that's when I started my television show, which is Healthy Gourmet, and also had another uh, opportunity to join the Marilyn Dennis Show, and I'm now her uh, one of her main nutrition experts, which has been such an honor to do for 10 seasons. And then wrote my books, Meals That Heal Inflammation and Slimming Meals That Heal, and the latest being The Hot Detox. So yeah, it was really fun to have you help me research um, some of the we had 1,200 references in my first book, Meals That Heal Inflammation. So to have some help finding resources was really a, a fun journey in the beginning. Thank mm-hmm. you. Well, thank you for that. That was uh, a really awesome uh, sort of recap, if you will, or pulling it together. And, um, you know, I don't want to downplay anything because you are, uh, I would say you are Canada's most well-known um, nutritionist. And oh, as, much, thanks. As, as much as you did a lightning fast two minute, um, you know, download of your activity, <laughs> I just want others to know out there that Julie is a real, um, you, you know, you are someone who's extremely active uh, and visible in the community. Um, you know, I know I've see you all the time. You're either on TV or you're doing, um, keynote talks or you're MCing or something. So you're, you're a rock star out there and, uh, we'll just, um, I'll just throw that out there for our listeners. Um, but you know, you're, I, too, you're too kind. And I just want to say it takes one to know one because you are so charismatic and are doing such amazing things. And I think you've touched thousands of young nutritionist lives because of how much you've taught at the holistic the holistic colleges being part of the institute of holistic nutrition mm-hmm. um, for such a long time so thank you for your amazing contribution in creating the the young nutritionists out there i think i think they'd agree how how wonderful it is to have you frame things up and and present well researched information Awesome. Well, thank you for that as well. Um, yeah, and things are certainly changing. Uh, we'll we'll probably touch on that a little bit as we get into today. So, Julie, so today I wanted you to come on the show. We are like literally a few days before Christmas here, 2018. Um, we're looking forward to the new year. And for so many people, it's New Year's resolutions, it's uh, upcoming health trends and so on. And so I've invited you onto the show today to be more of a co-host and a conversationist. <laughs> Um, instead of, you know, hey, Julie, uh, what do you do? And let's unpack that. So that's, and I think that you're the perfect person for it because you and I, whenever we have conversation, it's always good. We're always getting into things, picking them apart. And I really wanted our listeners to sort of eavesdrop um, on a conversation. So the topic for today, or topics, I should say, and I'm, I'm actually, um, we might be releasing this in a two-part series for the simple fact that we could be here for a while. Um, <laughs> let's see how we go. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about health trends for 2019, and we've tried to whittle things down to uh, 10 things on a list. Mm-hmm. And some of these things, well, actually, each of these things really warrants a much longer and deeper discussion. But I wanted to cover those for you guys out there listening to this. And um, obviously, we can continue this conversation uh, wherever we post this, a website, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. So um, are we good with that, Julie? Should we just hop right into it? I think so. I can't wait to get started. I was, I was just relishing in the topics that we chose. So let's do this. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so topic number one, which seems to pop up everywhere, is the topic of self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I, I'm, I'm going to throw it on you, Julie, to open this one up. Self-care of 2019, what does it mean and what are we looking at? Well, self-care is something that has, of course, been around for a while, but I think people are finally getting to the point where they understand that it's a non-negotiable because a lot of people will pay at lip service like, yeah, you should really meditate. But the person who's in overwhelm, the person who's stuck in fight or flight, they have no idea how to get into a meditative state. It's so mm. overwhelming yeah. that I think that us uh, taking smaller pieces, chunking it out a little bit, making it more enjoyable for people, having an amazing array of apps available has been really helpful. And I just want to put a word in. Um, I absolutely love uh, making sure to, instead of saying, hey, why don't you meditate, saying, you know, taking getting into a meditative state takes some practice. So why don't we just practice breathing deeper and counting our breath or doing something that's very attainable. And that's going to help people really segue into that and really seeing it as self-care is an act of self-love. So saying to someone like, hey, if you really want to be kind to yourself, um, maybe just try on this one small practice. And my the big one that I do constantly because I'm a free diver is I do um, exhale twice as long as I inhale as a meditative practice. So you breathe in for five, breathe out for 10. And that slows your heart rate right down. It slows your stress response where you really do feel like you can uh, take on more. And I just love it. So I do hope that people find their own self-care practice, whether it be essential oils in the bathtub or whether it be slowly eating, like eating your, your chocolate as slowly as possible so that you, you really make it into um, a, a real conscious exercise instead of it just being an inhaling where you look down and you're like, where did that row of cookies go? <laughs> uh, you know, oh no. Uh, there's so many ways that we can take on self-care in a really lovely, playful way instead of it being, oh, do I really have to do that? Yeah, I think yeah. we have to move away from that uh, paradigm and get back to this is a delicious precious amount of time that we have and it's so much more entertaining when you get into it than watching yet another netflix show mm -hmm. and so it sounds to me like the sort of what you're alluding to more here is more a state of uh, greater self-awareness um, mm -hmm. you know consciousness and so on um, but also more of a mindful um sort of central point, if you will, to one's healthcare, right? Um, mm -hmm. So the way I look at self-care as well, and, and this is, I think a lot of people have brought this up, you know, self-care is obviously empowering ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And I find that for a lot of people, and you sort of touched on it um, a couple minutes ago, for a lot of people, the idea of self-care can be downright overwhelming because as we read things, we automatically fall into this trap quote unquote where we feel like we have to do everything in order to be well yes right like we have to exercise we have to eat the right foods we have to meditate we we need community we need to read we need to do hot cold baths like you know there's just seems to be so much to do and i and i don't know i feel like that can be very very stressful for people so i guess what you're saying and maybe you can add to this is maybe pick a few things that resonate with you and go with that 
Yeah, I don't think you need to do a million things. And I think it can be stressful if you say, well, you have to do these 101 things in order to feel good. Um, I think that's really not giving your body enough credit. But I do think if you're in, a, in overwhelm, if you're in fight or flight, that we have to figure out the tools that really work for you. And, and I found my way in by, by picking something that was very joyful. Like I love the ocean. I love water. I love free diving. So I kind of centered my meditative practice around something that would bring me a greater ability to do that thing. So if you're a dancer, then obviously a yoga practice that complements that would be right. Right, really right, right. So I think it's coming. It, I always say, can we, can we come from a place of joy and choice instead of oh rolling our eyes and saying i have to do this mm-hmm. well that's never gonna fly there's not gonna have any longevity to it no but if we find practices that really like when we're finished we're like wow that was time well spent oh i can't wait to get back to that then that can be uh, something that i think has true legs yeah no and I, I i fully agree with you and um you know i think that the word self-care is pretty self-explanatory um mm-hmm. unintended. um so let's move it on because i know some of these other things we're probably going to sure. check for a while uh, on them um so sort of tying in with self-care a big one that is cropping up everywhere is uh sleep optimization oh right? yes I kind of found, I found that quite interesting as a health trend, right? Because I guess for people like you and I, you know, having been in the field for so long, we just sort of take that as a given. But apparently it's uh, the, the Google search searches for that particular phrase have shot up like by hundreds of percent. Um, people are looking at that. So um, what do you make of that? Well, I really think that we do have a huge amount of women who are heading into perimenopause and menopause and sleep becomes a huge premium. And I have to confess, as a, as a woman in her 40s, it has happened to me and I really have sat up and taken notice and doubled down on anything to help me get a deeper sleep. And I feel that uh, the world is really understanding that sleep now clears your beta the beta black in your brain if you want to clear all of that entanglement and prevent alzheimer's we absolutely need to get to sleep Mm. if we want to prevent depression if we want to help a child learn we absolutely have to get a deeper sleep so the science is out and and having that amazing publication there's a beautiful article in national geographic just a few months ago that that really helped people just have this massive awakening of oh Oh, okay. I thought, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Like, like a lot of I've people just before, yeah. <laughs> as little as possible, you know, and I'm not going to lie, like in my twenties when I felt invincible, uh, yeah, sure. It'd be super fun to stay up all night. And now right. it's like, we do this a third of our life, a third of our life. Well, we should be. <laughs> Yeah, right. But the average Canadian's getting less than, you know, six hours and, Which, and anything less than six is, is really hard. Yeah. Which is completely crazy to me. I mean, um, you know, the whole idea of sleep, um, I think it's, it's a product of our culture, this idea that we just need to go, go, go. And, you know, if we sleep, I'm either missing out on something or I could be working instead of sleeping. So why would I want to sleep? You know, I want to make money. I want to, you know, and I think that that's, that's one side of it, but let's bring it back, back, back on point to health issues, right? And the things that I've sort of discovered in my practice um, as being some of the sort of core root 
causes of poor sleep. Um, you know, you touched on it a minute ago is obviously hormone imbalance. Uh, mm. A big one that ties in with that, but that's a lot more pointed to sleep is actually adrenal issues, right? Yes. So if you've, if you've got that, um, you know, that wired and tired uh, kind of feeling at the end of the day, you know, you might have high nighttime cortisol, um, if you have, if you feel like you're burnt out at the end of the day and you go to sleep too early, but you're waking up every night at two o'clock or three o'clock, that is also a sign of your cortisol spiking in the middle of the night. So it's yes. almost like you're stuck in this like survival slash fight or flight mode. And even when you're sleeping, your body's going, whoa, there's like a woolly mammoth chasing me or yeah. out and bam, like cortisol. So um, another third one that I've seen a lot is blood sugar imbalances. Yes. You know, so your blood sugar, you're riding that roller coaster every day. Your energy is just all over the place. And um, those types of people... I found they go to sleep super early, like nine o'clock. You are just, you feel like you are done. And for them, they wake up as well, middle of the night. So they don't usually have a problem falling asleep, but they have a problem staying asleep. So don't know if you have anything to add to that, Julio, maybe even offer some tips for our listeners uh, on how Absolutely. to get better sleep. Absolutely. I would love to talk to people about um, the benefits that I found of really getting rid of blue light. So I um, have been wearing those wild orange glasses. I, I put them on around six o'clock at night and it really helps me because I'm actually realizing that Netflix with that huge sound effect and the bright <laughs> popping light that they do at you, or if you've ever watched a TED talk, it's the same thing. It mm. sounds like a a huge pop that goes off. So all these things that we're attracted to watching late at night, it's such a strong amount of blue light that it's really simulating uh, outside bright sunlight. And that quality of blue light is totally shutting off our ability to make melatonin. Mm. And of course, that's going to mess up your cascade and have you stay up way too late. So that's been a big difference. Uh, of course, I use the orange filter. If, you, if people don't know it yet, it's called Flux. It's an app that you can download um, that allows you to put an orange cast onto all screens. So everything you're looking at. But for your television, uh, it's much harder to do. So that's why it would be a great idea for people to... Just if, if sleep is a real concern for them, um, they're not expensive to get an orange shade. Uh, it's like, it's funny, you're looking through the world with rose-colored glasses on, literally, and um, it's really delightful. It makes everything appear a little bit uh, sharper because it really cuts down glare, okay. but it's wonderful for sleep. And the other thing that I do for sleep uh, when I have a big date, like I can normally use something like a yoga nidra, which is a meditative sleep um, wonderful walk through body awareness exercise. My, my brother is a yogi for 20 years. So he developed this beautiful sleep tape for me that I listen to his voice and it just pushes me into a beautiful sleep. And they say, nice. even if you can't sleep, yoga nidra is equivalent to like one hour of yoga nidra is equivalent to three or four hours of sleep. So it's wonderful Whoa, for people who are really seriously having insomnia to lay down and listen to this. So um, if people want that, it's on my website at juliedanlep.com and just, just uh, search for sleep and you'll come across my brother's uh, beautiful meditative 
yoga nidra, which literally uh, translates to yogic sleep. And it's a, mm. a wonderful download. So um, the, 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 is this something yeah. that people would listen to before they go to sleep? Yes, they can listen okay. to it before bed. They can listen to it in the evening. Whenever you just want to relax and mm, take okay. the edge off that fight or flight, which is in the background of everyone being wired and tired. Yeah. And another one that's been really working for me is listening to binaural beats. Um, that's a, a certain frequency that actually does help your nervous system calm down. So you can look that up on YouTube. There's lots and lots of them on, on you know, whether you subscribe to Spotify or subscribe to Apple Music. Uh, you can download some music that has this really specific frequency that just calms you right down. It's very white noise that you would put in a baby's room. Yeah. Um, it's very, very calming. And then I also have one last trick that's totally amazing where I will, if I wake up in the middle of the night, because I have no problem getting to sleep. For me, I will wake up in the middle of the night if I have television the next day. So before going on Marilyn Dennis, it just is always in the background of my mind that I'm about to get up and do like this, you know, up to a million people are watching. So I'll, I'll wake up too early, like four or five in the morning, and then I'll run a nice warm bath and put some lavender oil in the bath. And then I actually coat my lower abdomen with some castor oil. And instead of doing a castor oil pack, which is a total pain in the butt, and you like end up having to <laughs> deal with your flannels and it's uh, right, oh, right, <laughs> yeah, right, it's annoying. So I just put it on my lower abdomen, and then I climb into the hot bath, and the heat from the water warms up the castor oil, and it just does a beautiful job of really calming me down and helping nice. my belly, and it has really improved. Of course, my digestive function is really good being a nutritionist, but it just really helps that amazing peristalsis because when you're in fight or flight, your peristalsis can stop. And so that's the one of the big things is how many women, huge amount of women um, are dealing with constipation issues. Let's really look to gentle things that help you move. And the castor oil um, just really has you have just brilliant, complete eliminations. Right. So th those are great tips because those are things that um, I love what you shared because it's not what people usually think of, right? Yeah. So, you know, we, we know full well about melatonin, about our yeah. herbs like passion flower and chamomile and stuff like that. Sure. But I think the biggest challenge for people, and myself included, is again not so much falling asleep, but it's waking up, right? Is it, there's not a whole yeah. lot you can do when you wake up at two in the morning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I do want to speak to, and I know you know this, is that between two and four in the morning, if you're consistently waking up, really look at your organs. Because in traditional right. Chinese medicine, if one of your organs is working too hard, like your liver, it will wake you up when it's trying to detoxify. Yeah. So sometimes doing a cleanse will be really good. And I know that, that that's right out of your playbook, but I just thought I'd mention yeah. it. <laughs> no, that's great. Th thanks for the reminder. And especially for those of you listening out there as well, you might not know that. Um, I have mm -hmm. most did a great if you just go and scout through my photos on Facebook and Instagram um, I actually posted a great circadian rhythm clock uh, nice yeah so you can actually see which organs are where on the dial and all sorts of stuff but yeah two to four is definitely liver time and mm -hmm. that's when detoxification is happening so liver and of course adrenals um, also kick in so um, mm -hmm. let's move us forward and it does tie in with self-care as well so right now we've sure. self-care we've got sleep optimization and I found this one interesting um, for many reasons, uh, living a sober life. Yeah, I love so, that. 
Yeah, so people are actually, um, millennials and younger people are drinking much less mm-hmm. than their parents and grandparents ever did, uh, which I, I found very interesting, in fact, you know, because you sort of assume that young people like to party, like to have a good time, but it seems like because the field of health and wellness has just become so huge and people have become so much more aware, it almost seems like the younger people are sort of opting out, which, uh, you know, I found interesting. So what, what, any thoughts from your side there, Julie? Absolutely. I mean, I've been contact high surfing for a long time, which is basically I walk into a party, I grab a, a glass of water with a little bit of a splash of juice to make it look like I'm having a cocktail and walk around and just imbibe the energy of the group. So I totally know what that sober partying is like. And I love it. I just love it because let's face it, all you're looking for is for other people to become uninhibited enough for you to get up and dance, for you to get up and laugh, for you to have a good time. So if people can make their way there without the use of substances that will make them feel absolutely horrible. Hallelujah. It is over. We are overdue to embrace socializing and having a good time without the need for something that completely alters your mind. And one thing I just love is that a lot of these parties are looking to elixirs that might mildly spike dopamine, um, but won't necessarily create that sledgehammer effect that you have to pay a cost for. So that's the problem with drugs like Coke, you know, people are, cocaine elicits this massive release of dopamine. And then afterwards you feel horrific um, withdrawal, where if you have like, say some raw cacao or some mushroom elixir that might elevate your mood, but Mm. you come down so gently off of it because it's got that adaptogenic effect instead of it being a, just a stimulant effect. That's where I think people can have such a good good time. And we've been um, having a lot more game nights. I, I truly feel that kids are looking to their parents and seeing that substances don't make you happy and are looking for uh, something more. You know, I think it's a really beautiful evolution to see people say, enough is enough. I, I want uh, I want to get through um, this time without necessarily needing to have a midlife crisis when I'm 40 yeah. uh, because they, they see that uh, there's a lot of damage done when we abuse substances. So hallelujah. I think it's a great trend. Yeah, me too. And it's interesting because, you know, especially alcohol, like I'll sort of point it to that because hard drugs, I mean, I don't think we need to talk about that at all. Um, mm-hmm. Hard drugs are hard drugs. But alcohol, I mean, it's just such a, it, it's it's such a widely accepted, you know, socially acceptable drug, if you will. Mm -hmm. And yet when you really start getting into, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts on psychedelics and hallucinogens, um, you know, things that are a bit more uh, ayahuasca, ibogaine, stuff like that, which are very spiritual, you know, plant-based medicines. And it's interesting because when people think about those types of drugs, quote unquote, they usually, you know, we've always thought of them as being very bad, you know, like, whoa, those are crazy, they're party, like you get out of your head, blah, blah, blah. But what's interesting is we've got the social lubricant called alcohol, which is probably the thing that depresses your brain and mind the most, 
right? Yes, yes. Which is quite interesting. Like, I mean, if you did a hit of acid or, or ibogaine or ayahuasca or anything like that, you're going to have some pretty crazy internal revelations about yourself. Whereas alcohol kind of does the opposite. It sort of shuts you off from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is interesting, you know, and it's, uh, I did a great Facebook live um, last week, I think it was, which was all about alcohol. And so a lot of discussion and dialogue happening from there, especially around this time of year, you know, holidays and whatnot, people tend to overindulge. Um, so I'm interested to see where that trend goes um, moving forward. I think I just pray that it continues and that people do find, like, I'm sure you totally relate to this. If you've ever taken some really awesome yoga classes or done a retreat, you get to such a high place mm-hmm. that you go, wow, like I got here all by myself. I didn't need to take any specific substance to get here. And you have this moment of piece of, you know, that's what's so interesting. If you look at the drug types and what people end up being attracted to their specific chosen substance, whether it be, um, something that's extremely high, uh, and, and stimulates their mood or whether it's something that, uh, kind of creates that cocoon for them. I just mm-hmm. know that, that yogis have been experimenting with those states, for 5,000 years right. and we are tapping into the ability for your body to make your own endorphins without the need for external sources. But I do appreciate that we can use plant medicine to right. help us assist with certain states, but I don't think we uh, need anything at all to feel love, connected, grounded, and uh, high as a kite, quite frankly. <laughs> well, and, and that's exactly it. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. Um, it's not like we would be going out and socializing on psychedelics and magic mushrooms, mm-hmm. whatever else. It's not really the intention. The intention is more to help people awaken and then you would not do those anymore, right? So it's sort of like a gateway, if you will, to understanding yourself. But anyway, I don't want to derail us on the conversation. For those <laughs> who are interested in psychedelics, go and check out. I've done a lot of podcasts on that, um, you know, with shamans and all sorts of good stuff. So have a look at that. But since we're talking about substances and whatnot um, and living a sober life, uh, kind of ties in a little bit with that, but the next big trend that we're looking at here is actually CBD infused everything. <laughs> and I say everything uh, with a deadpan, 100% serious look on my face. <laughs> it is deadly serious. Even though everything. I'm not taking you seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. I know it's just cropping up anywhere, everywhere. I just think it's totally bizarre, this whole thing of like pot being legalized in Canada, but CBD being left out. Like, it's just so bizarre. Yeah, so, so let, let's actually, I think a lot of listeners don't know that. So, you know, we're sitting in Canada, um, yeah. everyone thinks that everything is legal now and we're just walking around smoking joints and whatnot. That's not really the case at all. Um, so CBD is actually illegal at this time and recreational marijuana is legal. Is that... Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah, where we're at. That's, that's very distressing for me because it, it will essentially have people feel that um, the most important, I think the most important part has been left out. And I can't really? believe years have been put into this negotiation. How could we have left this piece out? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm just mind boggled by that. But I will say, um, I think that we are going a little hyperactive with the different products that it's available in. And I do want to speak to one grave concern I have about CBD oil, which is people are giving it to their children. 
like it's nothing, like literally like, oh, it's just something to calm them down. And one thing that I really want people to remember is we have cannabinoid receptors in our brain. Yeah. And my concern is if you overuse those in a, in a very young child, will they need higher doses as they get older? Because all substances end up needing higher and higher doses the more you use right. them. So I, I have some good points to share on that because I did a fantastic yeah. podcast um, with uh, the guy who actually, you'd be interested in this, Julie. Mm-hmm. He, um, his name is Todd. I forget his last name. I have to go back in the archives. But Todd was the guy who, he's like Mr. Hemp, like the original yeah guy so he yeah. was the first guy with a hemp cookbook he was the first guy to bring hemp seeds onto the market in north america he does cbd extraction and manufacturing so we had a really really long in-depth discussion uh, so those of you who are wanting to deep dive go back and check it out you'll see it mm-hmm. right there but what what was interesting is that um we have identified upwards of 80 cannabidiols in cbd Mm-hmm. So, so CBD is not just one compound. There's actually 84 compounds within cannabis. Mm-hmm. And different extraction methods will pull out different cannabidiols, mm-hmm. right? So one, you know, this will pull out these three over here. This will pull out 10. This will pull out 20. And, you know, just what you were saying before, we actually have an endocannabinoid system that is in, in us, right? And so the challenge, there's two two issues that come to mind. One is... We don't know yet how to diagnose how, how your cannabinoid system is, is, um, is dysfunctional. So we don't know by looking at you or testing or whatever, we don't know which, which cannabidiols your body needs. We have no idea. So at this point, it's all trial and error. Now, what you were saying before, which is relevant, is your endocannabinoid system self-regulates. Right, which is really important. So if your endocannabinoid system is deficient and you put in the right CBD, it's going to top it up. But if you keep doing that, the endocannabinoid system forgets how to self-regulate. So I'm not as concerned about needing higher dosages. I'm more concerned about children becoming dependent on it. Yes. So hopefully that's a good summary, especially if you guys listening out there. That's more my concern. Um, you know, if you can't, and even Todd, Todd goes on a ganja fast for, um, one month every year. So he will stop doing all CBD. He'll stop doing all marijuana for a whole month just to kick his endocannabinoid system back in so that it can self-regulate. That is what, um, really does concern me. And, and I think this comes from the fact that I'm going to out my mother that now for a second. My mother was a heavy (laughs) caffeine user when I was a baby. And I think she was probably drinking upwards to five cups of coffee in the womb because it was the seventies and they didn't know any better. And when I have caffeine now, I literally feel like I've put quadruple double a batteries in my brain like all of a sudden i just feel so darn good but because i've watched my mom have adrenal exhaustion uh because literally she continued to drink like pots of coffee her entire adult life i i just am now so aware of that that i i go on caffeine fast where i only allow myself one or two uh caffeinated substances on days of performance like right now i'm running on a caffeinated ketone shake because i know that i'll be able to give you the most amount of juice but then i'll have whole three days where i won't have anything because i think that's what's really important for us all to remember is if you overuse something your body will adapt and Mm -hmm. you will not 
not have this, the maximum oomph. And so I want everyone to use this with great care yeah. um, as nature intended, which is, I think, uh, in balance. And we have to remember these are highly... Uh, extracted and concentrated substances. So we can't just pound back day after day the same amount and expect to have the same results. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I will say um, that I have seen great results with people who've chosen under naturopathic care to use CBD oil um, because it is such a great pain reliever. So as a person who loves anti-inflammatory research, I am looking into the mechanism and how it works and and it it seems very sound, uh, but I do think that it needs to be in harmony with a lot of other choices. And also let's get to the root of why you're inflamed in the first place. and, and hope that we can actually uncover structural imbalances, injuries, uh, tissue irritation with uh, major inflammatory foods that we need to remove, and then we won't need as much of these things. And of course, when we're looking at CBD being great for seizuring, well, that's because it's so the brain is so inflamed and luckily we can do a lot to reduce brain inflammation and bring about a state of balance that will hopefully have people need less and less of an external substance Mm -hmm. to feel normal Mm -hmm. no i think you're spot on um you know just to round us off here um i still you know i believe that there is still so much research to be done in the area of cbd Mm -hmm. and endocannabinoid system and you know hey look if it's going to help with things like the opioid crisis and whatnot, more power to us because it's way safer. But I, I totally agree with you, you know, always looking at the roots and trying to find the root cause as to why these issues are happening in the first place is is the obvious choice. And it's not yeah. the easiest choice, but it's it's the better choice. So yeah, sure. um, Right. So let's move us uh, forward today. <laughs> and off air, we were kind of chuckling at this because I think we're going to have a good time here. Um, <laughs> the next on our health trend uh, list here for 2019 is something called ketotarianism. <laughs> right, so if ever there was like, and I'm just gonna, you know, I haven't really looked at this, I've got my notions and my, my thoughts on all of this, but this is um, going to be the next fad diet craze. Uh, and what it is, is doing a ketogenic diet, but doing it vegetarian or vegan. Um, okay, what do you got to say about that, Julie? <laughs> Well, I will say that being a vegan is fraught with the potential of nutritional deficiency. And then ketogenic diets have a huge potential for nutritional deficiency. So you have to be super diligent in how you take these on. And I know that there's a place for both of them, but you can imagine stacking them now you're dealing with like let's just go over if you're a vegan you have to watch your b12 you have to watch your uh, zinc you have to watch your um omega-3 those iron, are really protein. tough iron yeah. protein those are all key things there's a big five that people will often become deficient in quickly then with the ketogenic diet we're missing a whole bunch of things like anthrocyanins good luck with that because all good anthrocyanins are in carbohydrate sources So how do we get the nutrition that someone desperately needs when we're cutting off so many food things, so many important rainbow nutrients within our diet? And that's Mm -hmm. why I'm like, okay, well, I do see one very useful place for it, and that is in cancer, because we know that the Mm -hmm. ketogenic diet is excellent for slowing and preventing tumor growth, and then the vegan diet helps to get rid of a lot of the, the 
the actual growth factor that that is really problematic. Um, insulin growth factor one, you know, having um, the avoidance of all antibiotics and a lot of the toxins that come from animal sources. So I see a place, but for the common person to walk this line, I fear that it really would potentiate um, orthorexia, which is yeah. uh, an obsession with trying to eat perfectly. Um, and I want people to just take a deep breath and go, okay, do we have all our nutrition covered off? And if you do need to go on a diet like this, then you better walk through this valley with a nutritional researcher and have them help you design a brilliant menu plan so that you can cope because yeah for all the reasons we said i think i think it's very (laughs) nerve-wracking i mean i'll i'll add my two cents in here maybe my 10 cents um So the, first and foremost, for me, I think that the anxiety and stress of actually trying to maintain this type of diet is going to cripple most people for yeah. the simple fact that, you know, when you look at animal foods, they naturally have fats. They naturally are low in carbohydrates. They, you know, it's, it's eating a conventional ketogenic diet in, its, in and of itself is very, very difficult to maintain. Most people actually fall off and go out of ketosis for the simple fact that it's near impossible to manage. So the stats on that are pretty crazy. I think it's upwards of uh, 80% or even 90% of people don't maintain it. But now, if you look at plant-based foods, you really are looking at nuts and seeds. Um, even avocado has has carbohydrates, right? A good portion of carbohydrates. So you're not left with a whole lot of food. So my concern here is that people are going to have to start you know, guzzling tubs of coconut oil and just extracted oils right but the other side of things for me is as far as i can see i mean ketogenic diet i don't know too many cultures who have traditionally followed that type of diet aside from our inuit uh, friends in the arctic but outside of that i mean a, a, a diet that is that high in fat done with plants only i would challenge anyone to find me a culture that subsisted on that for any length of time because i don't think we did um, so again, I just look at it as very unnatural in that sense. It really is unnatural. And I am concerned about, like, when we looked at the ketogenic diet, are you not concerned that that seems to have people think that, oh, I get to eat as much bacon as totally. I want. And I'm like, hold on a second. What part of the, the natural diet is as having sodium nitrate and white sugar curing pork product that's most likely conventionally raised <laughs> like it's like, yeah well, i mean not like let, let's even yeah. brush that aside and say straight up i mean it's not like the cow was standing in a field in paleolithic times and you know everyone was like hey guys what do you want to eat for dinner uh, do you want pork do you want there's a cow standing over there like what do we want yeah that yeah. never happened so if you look at traditional hunter gatherer tribes they would actually go through periods. The Hadzas, I mean, the Hadzas are, are, are very well studied now from East Africa. Mm-hmm. And you would find that they would actually be almost, I don't want to say ketogenic, but their high fat period would really be in what we would call a hunting season, right? So when the animals mm-hmm. are running in certain times of year, but they broke down their diet and hunt, they're the last hunter-gatherer tribe on the planet. And their diet is 70% carbohydrate. So. Wow. I've done pretty good podcasts on this. I've done my own podcast on ketogenic and I've had um, Professor Tim Noakes on the podcast. So we unpacked a lot of that. But I think just to round this off as well, um, unless you have anything to add, 
I, I think that this whole ketotarian craze is really pandering to the vegan and vegetarian crowd. And I feel like it's very warm and fuzzy and it makes us feel good from an ecological standpoint. And I absolutely support veganism and vegetarianism from that standpoint. I think the way we farm and raise animals is atrocious. I think we could do a much better job, but I don't necessarily think that this is the way to solve the problem. And I definitely don't think that this is the path to health by any stretch. Yeah, I think that if you do need to go through this for medical reasons, then we best uh, make sure to look at every micronutrient and make sure that you actually get it from a certain source. And it's short term, you know, it would be a short term therapeutic diet. I got no problem with doing whatever you need to do. You know, Mm -hmm. radical diets have have their time and place, but this, you know, people are advocating this as a lifestyle choice, you know, indefinitely. And that's where my sort of, uh, my red flag goes up. Um, for sure. Now, um, uh, on the topic of meat and vegetarianism, uh, the next biggest trend for 2019 is going to be meatless meat. And what we mean by that is cultured lab-grown meat. That's essentially, uh, you might have heard of cultured meat, you might have heard of clean meat. Um, Essentially, what we're talking about is cells, meat cells grown in a lab uh, to form meat. That's it. So it doesn't come from an animal. It's not grazing in a field. We're essentially feeding cells in a Petri dish to create a burger. Um, Right. Julie. Okay. So (laughs) in theory, this sounds like a way to solve the global, uh, certainly a potential environmental disaster that, that is really worrisome. We know now that nine times the amount of resources are used to grow cattle than to grow soybeans. So I totally get why we need to find an alternative uh, source of protein. My concern is that similar to genetic modification being sold as a way to solve our issue with produce, a lack of produce for developing countries, like it's, it's, it's really sold as a way to save us from, from a food crisis. I feel that we may have some health issues with uh, stem cell growth um, meat. We just don't know. And I know for myself, I don't want to be the guinea pig and I don't want my family to be the guinea pig of this technology. I think we need a five to 10 year buffer of watching it closely to see how it responds to the human body. We know that allogenicity is on such a rise uh, between genetic modification and uh, people having hugely delicate autoimmune conditions. Do we want to trust that uh, lab-grown meat will be well-tolerated by the human gut? Will the technology itself, like for example, what are they putting in the Petri dish? Are they using any antibiotics to prevent microbe growth? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we'll have to address to know whether it affects our microbiome. That's all things that I want answered well before uh you know my concern is will they just start putting this on the menu when it becomes available and there won't be proper labeling for it so i just want people to have the option to opt out if they don't feel comfortable yeah and, yeah um, i mean i mean we, we've seen this happen uh with cloned meats um you know mm-hmm. and, and so on and yeah i share a lot of your concerns i mean just to take us a step back and give us a thousand foot overview um you know human beings animals, plants, and so on, we also attract photonic energy. You know, there's something to be said for growing in the, you know, food growing in the environment that you live in, for example. I mean, it's grown in the same soil, the same climate, the same energy, and everything else. 
And my concern with this is that when you try and isolate something as simple or as complex as protein and just throw it in a Petri dish in a climate-controlled environment with no sunlight and so on and so on, you know, is that going to be the same food or not? And I don't think we really have that answer. I think from a chemical perspective, 100%, it's going to look the same. And yes, it's going to be cleaner and so on and so on. But my, my concern as well, so that's one side of it, right, is is that actually the same kind of food? And I don't, I don't think it is, but again, I don't have any science to back that up. My mm-hmm. other concern um, is, is this a scalable option to feed the world? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, again, like, are we just going to create a whole bunch of labs and start growing this type of meat with a population of 8 billion people on the planet? Um, and then are we going to export this to third world countries? Are we going to tell them to stop herding goats and so on and so on? Because the thing that people always forget is animals are an integral part of our farming system. Yes. So again, conventional, you know, industrial factory operations, yes, get rid of all of them. But small-scale farming where animals are out to pasture, I encourage you, if you've never heard of Joel Salatin, go and look up Polyface Farms and see what research he's done. Um, you know, all of your food, if you're a vegan or vegetarian listening to this right now, all of your food is grown in some kind of manure. Yes. You know, you can't grow. There's a whole movement called veganic where we're trying to now grow plants to fertilize the soil so we can grow food. And to me, it just seems completely mental. Like, why would you do that? So animals do have their time and place. And, you know, I think that if we could pasture more animals, if we could, we could all stand to eat a little bit less meat for sure. Right. Yes. So I don't know that being so radical as to say, get rid of all the animals and then let's just use lab-grown meat is really the solution to feed the world and save the planet. I just, just have a hard time with that. Absolutely. And if I can circle back to our CBD conversation, you know, one of the original great sources of CBD oil is hemp hearts. And hemp hearts, mm. in my view, is one of the best uh, meatless meat <laughs> substitutions out there. <laughs> I mean, if you want to create a burger, I have a delicious hemp burger in my book, Hot Detox, that is so delicious. And it has all of the essential um, amino acids that your body needs, which is so hard for a vegan to get, all those essential amino acids combined Mm. with magnesium, combined with zinc, combined with iron, combined with omega-3. So every single one of those things we were talking about, except for B12, is covered off with hemp hearts. And I think we need to look at truly sustainable vegan protein options and get really accustomed to eating um, this really low-impact protein uh, mm-hmm. versus just just really craving more meat. Right, sure. and, and, and I, think, I think, you know, especially for us living here in North America, I know there's many listeners, I think last time I checked, we had 52 countries covered. So I know that there's, people are tuning in from everywhere. Um, but I... I do believe that there is a way that we can live in some kind of ecological balance without being extreme, right? And I think that everyone, you know, we're looking at things and we're saying we have to be so extreme either way. And I like to bring it back to flexitarianism, you know, like listen to your body, tune into what your body needs. And, you know, yes, eat more vegetables. Yes, look to more plant-based proteins, but we don't have to throw everything out the window and say that, you know, um, just stop eating meat altogether. Uh, Julie, you're a practitioner. Um, You know, I'm a practitioner as well. And I'm sure you would agree with me that they are, uh, I've seen a lot of vegetarians and vegans in practice who have not been well. And sometimes simply including a little bit of animal protein back in the diet can make a huge difference for them. Well, I'm going to 
out myself right now and say I was a vegetarian for a decade and it really hurt me. Like yeah, as a person I did three and a half years myself. Yeah. As a person who had profound colitis, I had to stop eating legumes and I had to stop eating mm. uh, grains. And you can't really go it's very hard to go pagan, which is the new I can't stand that word because I think it should be reserved for the people who actually are absolutely in love with the planet and focus that's their you know it's already a word that was taken but that's that's a side note but but this this whole concept of of having a paleo lifestyle where you have removed a lot of of difficult to digest ingredients and it's really hard to do that as a vegetarian and and i was begged by my naturopath at the time would you please just put in some animal protein and when i did it was a massive step in my healing journey and that's mm. why my books do have you know some lovely fish and and chicken recipes because i think we do need to borrow the essence and the energy from an animal on occasion and i know that i'm going to probably get some hate mail from from the vegetarians yeah, it happens <laughs> but i do have to just uh come clean and and also say not just myself, but so many of my girlfriends, and I run in a very deep nutrition posse, as you know, mm -hmm. we've all come through the same place where we were at one point vegetarian and have come out of that phase, uh, borrowing energy from animals at different times in order to have uh, mm -hmm. our health really elevated. So it's a, yeah. it's a hard choice. It's not something I'm proud of or something I want, but I have to say I've never felt stronger and I've never felt more clear headed than when I doubled down on the omega-3 that's pre-converted in fish and had some animal protein that was very, very high heme iron uh, right. protein sources, right? right? Like chicken liver, which is just pure converted, easily absorbable iron had me just heal my anemia within months versus a struggle for a decade to get well. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, again, like I've been in practice for so long now and also having taught uh, so many people. Um, yeah. You know, I, it's a story that I've heard and I've seen and witnessed in my own practice and life over and over and over again. So, um, you know, I, I, sh I think we're saying the same thing here. Uh, yeah. I definitely, yeah, this is not to vilify anyone, you know, tune into what your body needs. And I think if you do that, you'll start to see, you know, a, a great saying that I've always said is, um, don't, don't eat your opinions and beliefs, right? Eat what your body needs. And uh, I think that's really important for us to bear in mind uh, as we move that's forward. That's a good one. It's a good yeah. one, man. <laughs> uh, so, uh, right, moving forward here. Um, we have done self-care, living a sober life, sleep optimization, ketotarianism, meatless meat, and we've spoken about CBD. So let's lighten it up a little bit. And the next big thing for 2019 as a health trend is going to be oat milk. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I got a great idea. Let's make some porridge and then blend it together and put it in a Tetro pack and sell it for five times what anyone should ever pay for something. So like, what's the deal with oat, like why is what's the deal with oat milk? Why is everyone uh, going gaga over oat milk? I'm not. I don't really know what the craze is all about. So yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that oats are actually a sedative, and and I'm sure you've studied so much herbs. Yeah. That herbalism, we, we really consume oats when we need to calm the heck down. So why would you want to start your day with something that knocks you out? And then it also <laughs> is a grass grain that's hard to digest, even though a lot of people go, but oats are gluten-free. 
Well, hold on a second. If you look at the actual protein structure of oats and, and wheat, it's very, very similar. So much so that if someone has an autoimmune condition, they should not really be consuming grains. So I am concerned when I see this trend. I would say, guys, it's so easy to make homemade hemp milk. All you do is take, mm -hmm. you know, like a third of a cup of, of hemp hearts, throw it in a blender, top it up with three or three or four cups of, of water, depending on how thick you like it. And what I love about making hemp milk is there's no residue. Unlike making almond milk, which you're left with all of this waste product. Yeah. And think about how expensive hemp the almonds are. You're not wasting anything because hemp shatters so easily that it's totally suspended. And uh, it just tastes great with either some vanilla extract, a little monk fruit in there if you want it sweeter. But what a wonderful way to make a milk in seconds, faster than making an average shake. And it's going to cost you a buck versus three or four bucks. And I hate the fact that most of these pre-prepared milks are packed in a BPA or BPS, which is just a, a, yeah. another form of hormone-mimicking plastic inside of a Tetra pack, which is very difficult to recycle. So I've loved people. I've, I've virtually not bought any prepared milks for half a decade because once you learn how to make them, and I have tons of recipes in my newest book, Hot Detox, there's really no going back when you realize it's such a, a money money waster to it buy really is. prepared milks. Yeah. Well, and the, I mean, the, you know, coming back to the whole environment, side of things uh, forget about oat milk for a hot minute but you know, <laughs> almonds i mean almonds like the reason why they're so expensive same with cashews is because they take a lot of resources to make and so you know if you look at the milk that you're buying for five bucks it's actually only two percent almonds yeah um, so there's the just like water. So many, yeah it's water it's yeah. water so i just honestly i think every now and then we'll buy like a bit and it just it just stays with us for so long because we don't use it all the time. So I actually stopped years ago. I remember when I first started getting into nutrition, I would actually use these store-bought nut milks all the time in my smoothie. And I was like, holy smokes, like I'm drinking a smoothie every day and I'm going through like liters of this stuff every week. And I added it up and I was like, holy smokes, this is just too much um, it, from a cost perspective and of course so much waste as well. So oat milk, um, I'm not really going to give that a thumbs up. I think it's a little bunk. Um, I, you know, if, if you want to do it, great, but um, I don't see what the craze is all about. Personally. I do want to just do a, a hot shout out to a trend that I think is worth some merit, which is celery juice is huge right now. And I love it because it's a rare source of a form of silica that's extremely easy on your stomach. And it really helps to nourish and repair your stomach lining for those people who are really struggling. So I think that's a trend that's like, hey, if you want to try something uh, and you own a juicer, the nice thing about celery is it's quite juicy and has a lot of decent amount of fluid coming off of it. And it's hard to sit down and eat like a whole like stocks and stocks of celery, but it's yeah. really easy to embrace a cup of celery juice first thing in the morning. So I think it's a, I think that one's at least worth a try for people who are really trying to heal their stomach. Yeah, and I, I did um, a half hour podcast actually last nice. week. I released it, so I sort of get into the pros and cons of that because there are some things that I'm like, well, you know, for some people it might not be the best. But um, again, don't want to derail our conversation today. Sure. So. Um, yeah, I, I have heard some really, really good feedback since I released that. 
uh, of people who have tried it and has said, yeah, you know, this, this stuff changed for me. My skin got better, blah, blah, blah. So I definitely think that there's a lot of merit to it. Um, but uh, again, go and check out that podcast and get some more info. Now, um, again, on a lighter note, uh, uh, Google searches have spiked for this um, goat milk soap. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I personally don't use goat milk soap, uh, so I can't really speak to it. I know that I was hoping we could talk about intermittent fasting. <laughs> well, um, so let, let's keep us on track, and if we have sure. the time, we'll get to that, because intermittent fasting has been a trend, I think, for 2018 and perhaps even 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, oh. But the difference, the difference that I wanted to speak to was mm -hmm. the time-restricted eating with the circadian rhythm of the sun has not been embraced yet. It's too okay, many people. So, so you know what? Let's hop okay. right into it. Goat okay. milk soap. Um, I am indifferent. I have nothing to comment. Suffice to say that goat milk has been, uh, it's very nourishing for the skin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yes, it's going to be a trend in 2019. I don't really want to waste any time talking about it. So Julie, intermittent fasting, circadian rhythm, give us the, the, the lowdown. Sure, sure. Well, so many people have been intermittent fasting and I appreciate that. But the problem is a woman with thyroid issues can derail their thyroid hormone even further by taking their fast too far into the day. So when you want to do these late fasts, like 11 to 7 or 11 or say noon to 8 or 9 because you have a social life, you really risk your cortisol going far too high and that, that cascade of cortisol really trumping your adrenals and your thyroid. So for ladies, I really want you to break your fast by eight or nine in the morning. And that's really following the research by Sachin Patel and other, uh, actually Dr. Sachin, it's a Dr. Panda. Oh yes. Um, Dr. Sachin Panda, who, who really spoke to um, how important it is to eat with the actual circadian rhythm of the sun. And we have to follow daylight hours to eat. Now, it becomes really hard in this dark, dark period here in Canada to follow the circadian rhythm because it means you're finishing your food by five o'clock at night. Huh. But if you can try your best to eat within the circadian rhythm as best you can, for myself, that typically is nine to, to six, nine to seven at the absolute latest, I have noticed a massive surge of energy, weight balance, amazing positive mind space if I eat within those hours and perfect digestion. Your, your gut is so happy when you get rid of carbs and other foods that it would struggle to digest. And if you are a person who has those wake-ups in the middle of the night, it could very well be because your liver is trying so hard to deal with dinner. So just try it on for yourself and see whether it makes a difference because, wow, I've been um, intermittent fasting strictly every day for the since August, I took it on as a life change. And wow, fasting during daylight hours really makes the difference. Huh. So, okay. So, so um, just to break it down for us, like, so people, we, we don't eat when it's dark, simply put. Yeah. Um, the only thing to keep in mind, you can't really do that easily in Canada unless you have a six or seven hour eating window. So I'm, I'm saying like eight to 10 hours is fine. It's wonderful. Uh, but just try your best to eat during the day and okay. try to break your fast really around 9am, 8 to 9am so that you have lower cortisol levels. And then people would still eat hard. So then you would do your breakfast, lunch, dinner kind of thing, perhaps some yeah. snacks. Okay, okay. Yeah, and then you just finish before. Like typically I'm hitting my fasting app 
uh, by about six o'clock at night if I can, or seven o'clock at night if I'm out doing a social dinner with people. Okay. And you know what? When we actually had that walk in the forest, we spoke about that. And that was, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we had a good, good long conversation around that because most people I don't think realize the whole cortisol spike in the morning. Your cortisol is naturally high in the morning anyway. Yes. So for a lot of people with your adrenal glands are firing on all cylinders, it's oftentimes because your thyroid gland is weak. So Mm -hmm. you sort of like, you know, a low in one area will cause a high in another area. And so, yeah, so I, you know, fasting is stress whichever way yes. you want to put it, it is stressful on the body. Now, stress can be good or stress can be bad, but if you're already stressed out, it's sort of like adding fuel to the fire. Um, is Yeah, it's so important for us to listen to our body. And if we're waking up and we're exhausted and we have to reach for a cup of coffee, in order to get through the morning, uh, that's not really working with us long term. Where I find if we break our fast in a reasonable hour, then we can fuel our body with with our, our foodstuffs, and we won't need as much coffee. Because I am worried about this bulletproof coffee craze. Uh, it's just so hard to have caffeine day, day in day out without any sort of support. Yeah, and I, th- I think that everyone kind of handles things a little bit differently, right? Some people are very sensitive to caffeine. Some people. Mm-hmm. Or wired, you know, they're hardwired to be able to withstand it and so on. So, um, all right. So it comes down to our genetics. If you want to have a zip one eight two test, you'd know very quickly whether you handle caffeine or not. If you're a fast metabolizer, zip one eight two fast gene person, hallelujah, you won the genetic lottery. Enjoy all the coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, Right. So we've got two more to go here uh, in the home stretch. Uh, The first one is IV drips for vitamins and minerals. I uh, I have experimented with this. I know a lot of my clients have. I think if you have profound inflammatory diseases that are reducing the amount of nutrient absorption that you can get, mm-hmm. uh, if you're a person who's had um, a gastric bypass, if you're someone who's had any part of your colon removed, of course you're going to need an totally. extra infusion. But I think common day-to-day people do keep in mind that it never replaces good nutrition um, because I'm concerned. My one thing when I was staring at the bag, I was like, that's in a plastic bag. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Wow, I am actually absorbing not just the vitamin solution that they're giving me, but a whole bunch of plastic mimickers too. That's so interesting. I, just, I, I didn't think of that actually. Yeah, but, uh, I just want to, and I've asked, I've asked naturopaths left, right, and center, can you not administer this in a glass container? And there is nothing available no, thus far. Because so, it doesn't ship. You, you, can't, you can't ship a solution. Yeah, like yeah. That, right? so I do think... Um, nothing replaces dark leafy greens, nothing. So I do think if, if you need it, if you're, if you're really run down and you, and your ability to absorb nutrition is really compromised, then yes, of course, Myers cocktails have a place, right. but I do think, uh, we need to also consider, um, sound options that are available to us daily and are really affordable. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I'll add to that because my concern here, uh, you know, you've got business people who are lining up on a Monday morning to get a, you know, an IV drip. Uh, it's, you know, we are talking about health trends, not necessarily health treatments here. And so my concern is as a health trend, people are going to be relying on that 
you know, and it's now, especially when you start getting into the whole anti-aging longevity um, mindset, you know, well, I can now do whatever I want and I'm just going to go and get an IV drip, uh, you know, once a month or twice a month and that's going to be good to go. So I, this is something that I think about, but I actually have really no um, science to prove otherwise or to prove it. But I wonder, I wonder how the body responds to getting things intravenously over a longer period of time. And does that compromise our nutrient absorption or metabolism if we start getting it intravenous? You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that is an excellent question. And one thing that is very rarely ever addressed unless you go to see a geneticist is how are you coping with these high-dose B vitamins out of order? Because yeah. the B vitamin complex is very much something where you pull on one string and the other responds because it's meant to be somewhat taken as a, in unison. And so it concerns yes, yes. me when folic acid is unbelievably high. Well, hold on a second. How does that play out with vitamin B5 or vitamin B3? Like, do we have the right mix for you? And so that's the only thing I also start to head scratch about is that this is 10 times what nature intended. It's so right. much higher than normal levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you continuously take these without factoring in the other nutrients at play, whether your body does start to have uh, problems because the liver is sped up with, uh, like, especially folic acid and vitamin B12, um, you know, really speeds up your methylation pathways. Well, are you able to actually handle that if we don't have other things in check within the liver? Because there's six pathways that are supposed to be functional. So if you're overstimulating one pathway, are the other pathways going, whoa, hold on a second. Yeah. So that's why I'm always scared of taking one nutrient in high doses over time instead of remembering what nature intended. Yeah, and also remember that when we're doing things intravenously, you're bypassing all natural entry yeah. routes into the body, right? Normally, yes. it would be transdermal. So if I apply something to the skin or if I breathe it in or if I ingest it or eat it, and this is just going straight to the vein. So yeah, so I share a lot of your concerns and absolutely, there's a 100% there's a time and place um, for it. Um, so let's move ourselves on to our last topic for today. And this is, sounds, again, to me, um, like, yes, there's a lot of merit, but I think, again, we're looking at trends, and I think people are coming up with nice words uh, to sell stuff. And um, the last one on our list, which is a health trend for 2019, is misonutrients. Uh, so what misonutrients are, um, we've got our macronutrients. So those would be things like proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. We then have our micronutrients, which would be our vitamins and minerals. And then we have misonutrients, uh, not miso, the soy, fermented soy paste. That's not what we're talking about. Um, misonutrients are the nutrients found inside the food. So these might be phytochemicals or phytonutrients, uh, things like curcumin, um, anthocyanins, ECGC, AC11, and so on and so on. So some of these are very well researched, um, but remember we're talking about a health trend. So any of these, you know, as a general starting point, what are your thoughts on this whole idea of really zooming in on misonutrients? Well, one thing I find interesting is that uh, we established the vitamin list how many years ago? Mm -hmm. And why has that vitamin list not remained very flexible? Because nutrition science is only 150 years old. Like, why do we not just keep moving things onto the vitamin list as needed? Because I'm fascinated at how, like, vitamin P 
which is bioflavonoids, actually fell off of that list and why we don't move it back on when we realize vitamin P actually facilitates the absorption of vitamin C at almost being like the car that carries the vitamin C into your tissues. So it amazes me that we don't have more of a flexible, um, yeah, a flexible, it almost seems like when uh, we're dealing with, anyway, we'll get into the philosophical debate of how hard <laughs> it is for science to move forward. But yes, I will, I will say whether it be flavonoids, whether it be um, anthrocyanins, we, we absolutely have to look at whole food is unreplaceable. You can't just put vitamins in a pill and have vitamin A through zinc and say, this is what you need. Where when we're dealing with whole foods, we're discovering these phytonutrients all the time. And in that right dosage of, of what the plant right. provides you has tremendous nutrition. My only concern is when you highly concentrate a specific active ingredient like epigallocatin gallate, when we look at the active substance within green tea, all seems fine and good. It's wonderful for metabolism. It switches off your hunger hormone, like does wonderful things, but it's mm -hmm. really hard in your liver over 800 milligrams a day. So much so that Health Canada now has a warning out on the concentrated substance because it has actually compromised people's liver function. Yeah, there, so like, there was the, the guy in the UK, I think it was, um, yeah. either in the UK or the US, but yeah, he got full on like liver disease. He had to be rushed to hospital and all yeah, sorts of yeah. Stuff. yeah. So we do yeah. need to look at, in nature, fantastic. Yeah. In a highly concentrated form, really take with uh, caution, take it within a reasonable amount, because I would hate you to find out next year that this year's health trend actually has some real side effects. Yeah, and I, I think I share, you know, I share your sentiments, um, and perhaps just for listeners out there, a good way to explain this is, when you look at food in nature, whether that's a superfood, whether it's a potato, or whatever kind of food you wanna look at, you never find one food with one nutrient, right? It's not like spinach only has iron in it. Um, or a banana only has potassium in it. We have all these different nutrients and those are synergistic compounds that all help to help each other to work, right? And that's what provides the health benefits of whole foods. So it's interesting to me that what we're doing is we're trying to isolate these things and then reconstruct them and put them back together, which, you know, for those of you who don't know anything about pharmaceuticals, I mean, all pharmaceuticals come from plants. But why do pharmaceuticals have side effects? Because we've isolated the active medicinal ingredient, right? And then we've concentrated it and we basically lost the synergy, but we've also lost the balancing components that would prevent those side effects, right? So it'd be very difficult for you to eat too much of a certain food um, and get like toxicity from it, if that made any sense. Yeah, I really want to mention willow bark as a prime example, right? Like willow bark is yeah. amazing, but the ASA within willow bark, taken in very high doses, like we do daily for blood thinning, um, unfortunately also thins the lining of your stomach and really can cause bleeding. Mm -hmm. So we have to just go, hmm, if we saw, saw that example with willow bark, why can't we extrapolate it out with most things? And that's why I really like to, to rely on food-based supplementation versus these highly concentrated forms. Yeah. And for those of you who do, um, have, you've been keeping up to speed with me on Facebook and that you'll have seen that I 
uh, I do training for a few companies, um, product training for host defense, medicinal mushrooms, for Botanica and for mega food. And all of those companies, um, what I love about them is it's all whole food, you know? Mm -hmm. So we're putting things in a whole food format. If we're doing, if we want curcumin, we're going to, um, we're going to give you turmeric and not just isolate the curcumin and so on and so on. So I think that there's a lot of validity to that. But um, I'm interested to see where that goes because, again, you know, this is um, a good avenue for manufacturers now to start doing these isolated extracts and expanding their product line. Um, Definitely. Definitely. And again, who who knows where it's going to land up. So, Julie, um, any final thoughts from your side? Anything else you really want to touch on today before we wrap up? One thing I really want to say is thank you so much for this opportunity to delve deeply into some very fun topics and and to have an opinion piece, which is very rare in this world. So thank you for creating the space for that and for having such a wonderful podcast. And if people want to find me, I'm available on Instagram and Twitter at Julie Daniluk, and my last name's D-A-N-I-L-U-K. And then, of course, I also am Julie Daniluk Nutrition on Facebook, and my website, juliedaniluk.com, has hundreds of recipes and articles that are very well researched and I can't wait to meet everyone there and continue the conversation and help support people with their their greatest health in 2019. Awesome. And I'm going to throw up a bunch of those links. uh, So check out the show notes below. And um, if there's anything else that I'm going to pull out of today as well, um, we might have some uh, a a lengthy list of links in the show notes or um, elsewhere. So Julie, thanks a bunch for um, taking time out of your day and coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. Great to sit down and just chit chat for an hour. Um, (laughs) It was wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. And for those of you listening out there, um, as always, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider subscribing, reviewing, sharing, um, doing anything that you can to help me bring more awesome guests like Julie. And uh, this might be the last broadcast before New Year's. So um, for everyone listening out there and for you, Julie, have an awesome holiday season and uh, let's make 2019 the best year yet. Awesome. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Talk soon. All right. Bye for now, everyone. Thank you.